Uh, we're going to get into God's word. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. If you don't have a Bible or an app on your phone or however you like to roll, you raise your hand. We will uh, get a Bible to you. We're a church that um, likes to build everything we do off of God's word. And I like you to keep me and anyone who's up here in the pulpit honest by making sure you see what I see in the scriptures. So again, we're kind of returning now after a few weeks, I don't know, maybe a month, a uh, month's hiatus from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we are now back in and uh, we're going to pick it up with a story concerning Martha and Mary here, verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. Let me read it, pray, and then we'll uh, dive in. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. We're asking you to take us on a journey this morning. From the heart of Martha to the heart of Mary. God, I know the wanderings within my own soul. How I, even in the midst of serving you, can be so far from you sometimes. Jesus, I pray for everyone here that you would address them personally, that you would invite them personally away from the frenetic, frantic pace, away from the anxiety of trying to order life, accomplish things, whatever it is, on their own. And into the rest that you offer in the gospel. So I'm asking you to open our eyes. I'm asking you to open our ears, open our hearts. Let us be attentive. Let us be changed by what you'd say to us here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So this is probably the text. If I if I were to think about things that I need right now in my own personal life, um, I would probably say this text hits it. 
straight on on the head. That if there were any verse in the Bible, any text of scripture that's going to get out what Nick Weber needs in his life right now, it's probably this one. I am not the kind of person that's prone to things like laziness or apathy or slothful kind of lounging around, you know, or numbing myself with entertainment. Not the kind of, some people go that direction. I'm the kind of person that instead can get so consumed with work, so consumed with activity, with productivity, with getting things done, that I end up sacrificing all sorts of other things along the way, sometimes even what we see here in our text, the one necessary thing. I um, can't tell you, even though it's to my shame, how many times I will get up in the morning, uh, hopefully holy ambition to uh, get quiet before the Lord and spend time in his word and in prayer. I got the coffee going. I'm up before the girls and, and, and Levi's awake and I'm, I'm going into my office, probably first wrong move to make, but I go into my office. I'm sitting down and within a matter of moments, I'm just doing work. Now, for me, the two blend, and so it is a little confusing. Work is church. Church is work. But what I mean is this. I had this opportunity to engage, to pour out my heart before God, to, to, to sit and hear from Jesus. And instead, what often happens is I end up start working on the next sermon or preparing for the next meeting. Oh, oh, that verse would be good for this person when I meet with them later in the week, or that would be good for the training that I'm doing here. And oh, before I know it, this interpersonal exchange between me and, and, and my maker, my redeemer, my husband, is gone. And so, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm a busy man. I'll catch you on the other side. Right? Now, here's a little self-inventory for you before we really dive in. Um, could what is said of Martha here in our text be said of you? And forgive me if we read it once and it passed by too quick. Let me show you what I mean. Could what is said of Martha be said of you? If you notice up there in, in, in verse 40, it says that she was distracted with much serving. Let me ask you, have you been distracted this past week? Do you feel like you've kind of lost your way and you're going a thousand miles an hour in a hundred different directions? You feel like you're going to break. Or you notice there, I think it's in verse 41 with Jesus's words that he says that Martha, you are anxious well, let me ask you, this past week, or maybe even this morning, anxiety there? Anyone deal with anxiety? I mean, hands should go up across the room, and that's where we are. I mean, I'm not actually asking for hands, but you know what I mean. We're there. 
Some of us more than others. Some of us, it's just kind of this little knot in our stomach. Others of us, it's that anxiety that kind of stops in your throat and almost threatens your breath. I'm talking about. Anyone these past nights troubled? That's what Jesus says next. He says, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Anyone feel burdened, troubled by the cares of life, by the stuff that they are facing? But usually you, you're one of those people that, you know, when 10, 10, 30, 11 rolls around, you're done watching your TV show or whatever it is you do. Maybe you drink a glass of warm milk, whatever it is. And you lay down, you hit that, your head hits the pillow and you're asleep. No problems. But lately, you're just laying there. Your mind is reeling. Your soul is burdened. You might as well be laying under a blanket of bricks. That's how Heavy it feels. Distracted, anxious, troubled. Anyone here? Now, the thing that I want to consider next is this. If I were to meet up with you, say, the next week, and we were to start talking about these sorts of things in your life, uh, and I were to ask you, I mean, I'm so sorry to hear that that's going on. Why do you think that's the case? Why the anxiety? Why the trouble? Why the the burden? Why the distraction? Why do you think this is going on? What would you say? This is self-inventory here, so I'm trying to give you even a moment to think about it. Would you perhaps bring up the new boss at work who seems to have it out for you? Would you talk about the struggles at home with your marriage lately? Or would you talk about uh, the fact that you just lost your job and now finances are so tight and you're wondering, am I really going to be able to make it in this valley? That's why the anxiety. That's why the burden. That's why I feel the way that I do. It seems to me we could always point to something, right? This is a fallen world. Jesus doesn't promise everything to just kind of float and be easy. It's going to be rough. We could always point to something to be anxious about. But I wonder if you see in our text how Jesus might answer that question for us. Why? Why the anxiety? Why the trouble? Why the burden? I think that's what he's doing here with Martha. Answering that question. He tells us straight up why we feel this way. When Martha is distracted, when she's anxious, when she's troubled, she could point, no doubt, to many things. And you start to see that happen, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But Jesus, on the other hand, is going to point to one thing. And it's not one thing that she's doing or that's being done to her. It's one thing that she's neglecting. One, that, one thing that she's chosen not to Engage it. You see it there, verses 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not 
be taken away from her. One thing is necessary, Martha, and here's the big problem. You haven't chosen. What's Mary doing, in case we've read too quickly through the narrative there? Sitting at his feet, the posture of a disciple. Listening. Letting Jesus speak into her life. Letting Jesus reorder the things of her heart. Letting Jesus and his relationship with him take priority. Over whatever else is going on. He says, that's the one thing. And when that goes off, everything else, Martha, is going to go off with it. So, really, just to kind of boil it down here, even before we begin, this text essentially is just about Jesus and where he stands in yours and my life. Not, you know, hey, well, I signed a card or raised my hand back when I was eight. I'm saved. I'm good to go, preacher man. I don't, you know, I know where me and Jesus stand. We're good. No, but where is he today? Where are you with Jesus here today? Where is Jesus in your life? Or perhaps the better way of putting it, where are you in relation to him? Are you with Martha kind of running around and you're in the same room? You might even be serving him. But your heart's not there. Were you with Mary where there's something going on between you and him? And listen, he's going to take care of the rest. That's where we want to go. As I prayed, I mean, that's kind of the journey that we want to be on. It's moving from that, that posture, the, the frantic anxiety of Martha into the peace that Mary's experiencing. So here's really what we're going to look at this morning. First is just two things. Um, first, we're going to look at the necessity of this sort of relationship with Jesus. This intimate connection. I mean, why is it necessary? Why does he say this is the one necessary thing? We're going to look at that. And then secondly, we're going to look at the neglect of it and what results. What results in a life when we start to go off from this center? So first, the necessity of it. What does Jesus mean by there in verse 42? One thing is necessary. Or when he says, hey, listen, Mary has chosen the good portion. What is he getting at here? Some of us might immediately, honestly, object to go, wait a minute. The good portion isn't what Martha is doing there good. I mean, she's serving, she's hosting, she's feeding and... No doubt it's good, but good in its place and with the right heart. And Jesus is going to take us a little bit deeper and say there's something that runs underneath all of our activities, something that needs to be there if all this is going to be in order. And that one necessary thing is what Mary's doing right now, this relationship piece. So I want to ask, why? Why is that the one necessary thing. And now, again, I got two things, really. Although I could have probably done a lot more. Uh, I'm sure you're happy that I just simply chose the first two that kind of came to my heart. Uh, so here's what I'll bring to the table. I, I think that this relationship with Jesus is the one necessary thing, first with regard to our uh, salvation, 
I think it's the one necessary thing because he is what we need ultimately, fundamentally with regard to salvation. But then also it's the one necessary thing because it's what we fundamentally need with regard to even our success. We're just life working the way that it should. And I'll fill that one out a little bit later in case you think I'm going prosperity gospel on you, which I'm not. So first, I think Jesus is saying this relationship with him is the one necessary thing because of, because of how we need him for our salvation. Um, immediately to my mind at this point uh, comes texts like the one, if you remember when the early church, they're just getting started, things are just getting rolling, there's a lot of persecution, uh, the guys are being brought before the Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish council, and their accusations being brought, and Peter now filled with the Spirit is bold, And he just lets out these words. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 No other name. Or I think of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, There is one God and there is one, only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So there's one name by which we can be saved. There's one mediator through which we can be saved. There is one way back to God and that is through Jesus. It's essential, it's necessary, it's the one necessary thing. If you miss Jesus, there is no other boat. The ship has set sail. You can't like catch a later boat with Gandhi or or, or Muhammad or Buddha. That is not going to God. And you certainly can't jump in the water yourself and swim. And make it your own way with your own righteousness. I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll stand all right on that day. It's not going to happen, folks. One name. One mediator. One way. If I could put it as forcefully as I can. It is Jesus His righteousness, His sacrifice for your sins, His saving grace, or it's hell. Those are kind of, whether we like it or not, those are the two options that God holds out for us in the Bible. Either Jesus pays for my sin, the presence of a holy God, lives a righteous life on my account, merits the reward of eternal life for me, or I'm set to pay for my sin myself, and I will. You know, that's it. Now, to kind of illustrate this and take it a little bit further for you, do you, do you remember um, the curtain? And what happened with the curtain of the temple on the day that Jesus was crucified? For some reason, this image was in my mind this past week, and I figured, hey, let's bring it in here. So I think it illustrates this point about Jesus being the one thing necessary for salvation. But I wonder if you remember, I wonder if you noticed the details. Some of you probably did know where I'm going. Some of you 
Maybe haven't yet caught on that almost every detail that you're going to catch in the Bible is going to be going somewhere significant. So I'm always looking at that, and I want you to see this with me. Um, so there's this curtain, right, that for years and years, kind of like this big wall of a curtain that for years and years has uh, been in the temple. And, 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 and it separated the people of God, even the priesthood and all of these holy men from the most holy place where God was said to dwell. Only one man could enter beyond the curtain into that most holy place, the high priest. And even then he could only go in there once a year, the day of atonement. You can only go in there on the day that you're going to say, listen, forgive us <laughs> and throw blood on the ark. But even then, for that brother, he could only go through after he had undergone all these elaborate rituals, washing, sacrifices, reminders that, man, there's, this is a trembling thing. The fact of the matter is, is if we go in there in the wrong way, we die. So the curtain, in one sense then, is this threatening, fearful, ominous thing. It's a reminder that even as God draws us near, which he does in his grace, but it's a reminder that even as he draws us near, he at the same time has to keep us at a safe distance, lest he, like he says to Moses, break out against us. Remember that? He says, don't let them touch my mountain lest I break out against them. Yes, I'm gracious. I'm calling you out of Egypt. Then I'm drawing you close. I'm drawing you in. I'm doing a great work. I'm bringing you here. But yes, I'm also holy. And you are sinful. And we're going to have to fix that. So the curtain that stood between uh, man and, and, and God stood strong all these years. as this kind of ominous, threatening peace. Whoa. Separating. But then, on the day of Christ's death, something astounding happens. Matthew tells us that in the last moments, as he hung there with the sins of the world on his back, this is verse 1551 of Matthew 27, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we think, wow, okay, so like an earthquake or something and buildings are breaking and I'm kind of seeing where this is going. Somebody's tapestry is ripped and all oh, that's too bad, but we'll get you a new one from World Market or whatever. No, that's not what's happening. Something so much more profound is happening. The implication in all of this is that in one way or another, Jesus, through his death, something's breaking, something's ripping. That, that dividing wall, the separation between us and, and God is, is being done away with. And the thing that I wanted to bring out is the direction that Matthew points out that, that, that this thing rips. I mean, that it rips, no doubt, but the direction for me is significant for the point that I'm trying to make here today. 
If, say, the curtain ripped from the bottom up to the top, well, then we might uh, be inclined to think that, hey, listen, it's almost kind of uh, implying that man has kind of clawed his way back up to God, that we from the earth have ripped our way, maybe through our own righteousness, our own efforts, back to God. But instead, what we read is that the curtain is torn, and he makes he takes pains to, to, to mention that it was from top to bottom. The idea, therefore, here is that the Son of God has done what no man could ever do. The tear begins at God's initiative. It starts where no man could reach. It starts up in the heavenlies, if you will, because of God's grace, because of Jesus' work on our behalf at the cross. We couldn't get up to him So he came down to us. So for all these reasons and more, this is why I think Jesus is saying, listen, Martha, there is one necessary thing and you got to get it straight. It's not all that you're doing for me and all the serving and getting all that going for the rabbi or pleasing God and developing your own righteousness. No, not any of that. One necessary thing. It's what Mary is doing. Receiving from me. Listening to the good news. Hearing about, remember Jesus at this point has said, I'm going towards Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to talk to you about that for a moment. We'll get back to the serving. We'll get back to the work. But stay here with me. Now, if we look at what Jesus says to Martha, I... I, I think it at first might actually seem a bit troubling. Like if you just kind of put yourself in the living room there and hear this going on, you're kind of, I don't know, I'd be tempted to side with Martha on this. Like Jesus looks at her and says, hey, Martha, Martha, Martha. Mary's chosen the good thing. Martha's Mary's chosen the good thing. You don't think my dinner's any good? You don't think me serving you is any good? You don't think what I've been cooking up in the kitchen is is working out right for Well, I'm so sorry, Jesus. I'll try to get an updated menu next time. And you kind of side with her on that. You kind of feel like, wow, wait, is Jesus just kind of being rude? But when you sit, you think, you contemplate what Jesus is really after, I think it's, it moves from being a troubling thing to being one of the most comforting things he could ever say to us. Because here's essentially what he is saying to Martha and to you and I. He's saying, Martha, listen, I love what you're doing. It's great, fine, I love, the meal's great. But listen to me, before you ever serve me, let me serve you. He's not saying the service was subpar and Mary's doing a better job. He's saying Mary gets it that you can't even begin this thing until you start letting me serve you. There was um, a shirt that we had back when I was college pastor in uh, San Luis Obispo. One of the things that we did on Friday nights around our town was like a designated driver ministry where we would drive kids from the frat parties, whatever, and try to share Jesus with them and let them throw up in our car and love them anyways. And it was, it was pretty 
It was pretty awesome. I, I, I missed that. <laughs> Not the throw-up part, if that's where you left. <laughs> but we had these shirts, and uh, on the front, we had this uh, ridiculously awesome, cheesy Jesus fish on wheels sort of thing going on. And then on the back, we put this verse and... It's the whole reason why I bring this up, Mark 10, 45. Jesus says this to his disciples. The Son of Man came, hear this, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came fundamentally, not first to be served in any way until he dealt with the ransom from slavery, the ransom from, from Pharaoh, the ransom from the devil, the ransom from God, all, until he freed us from all that was binding us. Then maybe we'll talk about service. Then maybe we'll talk about what it looks like to love God and neighbor. And absolutely he will. But don't you see the major difference that takes place on the front side of of his ransom, on the front side of the cross, then it's us trying to serve him to try to get in good with him. And it's exhausting. But on the back side of the cross, if we first let him serve us, redeem us, make us right with God, then now if we serve and when we work and when we labor, it's not from sort of a servile fear and anxiety. It's from gratitude and joy because of the one who has served us. So that's the sort of thing I think he's trying to pause here in Martha and say, wait, 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 wait. let's get you here. We'll talk about dinner and other stuff later. Let's get you here. That's the one necessary thing. Now, I said it's necessary, I think, and the one necessary thing because of its relationship to our salvation. But then now also, I think this relationship with Jesus is also the one necessary thing because of how it relates to our success just in life and in general as human beings here. Uh, Though we wouldn't say it, often we live as if Jesus is kind of really only good for uh, kind of getting us into heaven. Like Jesus is your man on the day you leave this world. Then you need him on your side. But while you're in this world, eh, eh, what really, I mean, come on, what really is, you know, do we need Jesus for? We kind of set up this dividing wall in between kind of the, 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 the spiritual, eternal, quote unquote stuff, and then the everyday stuff that we face. I mean, it occurred to me that there are probably a lot of us in this camp that would say, yes, I feel absolutely secure, at peace with regard to eternity and judgment day because of Jesus. But let me just tell you, I feel like a total wreck with regard to Monday. Jesus has that taken care of. But man, my day-to-day stuff has me in knots. We don't yet see how Jesus wants to come into that as well. 
who perhaps don't understand or believe that he's present in the midst of the day-to-day. And so that's why I kind of bring up this idea here, and I think he's probably after that with Martha as well, that he is the one necessary thing when it just comes to success in your day-to-day life. Now, again, I wanted to be careful here with this idea of success. I I want to explain what I mean, lest I be misunderstood. I'm not talking about Jesus kind of becoming your your sugar daddy in the sky, right? I'm not talking about, hey, what what he's saying is, is you pray, you talk to him a little bit, give him a few things he wants, and then he'll give you what you want. That's not what I mean by success. You know, like suddenly you're going to, your life's going to kind of, if you come to Jesus, your life's going to feel like you're like living in a Thomas Kincaid painting, you know what I'm talking about? Those, where everything's got like this warm glow and you're like singing Christmas carols in July. Um, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this relationship that you have with Jesus that changes you, changes your approach to everything, even if nothing out there even changes at all. That because you're engaged with your, your, your maker and your redeemer from the heart, moment by moment, now all of a sudden the same stuff, man, will he change it sometimes? Will he make that stuff shift and work things out for you in a way that you had hoped and dreamed and prayed? Yes, but sometimes he won't. And even when he doesn't, here's the thing that you catch, and I think Jesus wants Martha to see, I will be there with you. It will be a different experience altogether. Life will be almost like a Thomas Kincaid painting, not because everything is perfect, because in your heart, the spirit is there. We're going to look at this text later um, as we move through Luke, but as I was kind of looking at the context, even for this sermon, I noticed that uh, Jesus is going to start talking about prayer with us, right? And and then he, he says, listen, you know, if you ask a, a dad for, you know, bread or a fish, he's not going to give you a snake, right? And then he comes out with this line. Well, listen, how much more so then will your, will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And here was my thought. How many are actually asking for the Holy Spirit? In other words, probably we're asking for the bread and the fish. Probably we're still on that, like help my work, help my this, help my circumstances, give me the bread and the fish. But then Jesus comes out of that and says, listen, your father's going to give you the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm going to take care of what you need. I'm going to guard your heart and my peace. If you engage with me for real in this way that he's calling Martha into, the way that Mary is just sitting there, bringing, casting your cares upon him, like Peter says, then he is going to shift that heart around, even if he doesn't shift the circumstances. Because his spirit is there. That's what I mean by success. Now, Throughout the scriptures, God is always calling his people to put him before everyday stuff. Not because everyday stuff doesn't matter, but because he's the one who will take care of it for us. Uh, He doesn't just care about your salvation. He cares about your day today. And I wanted to just show you a few uh, examples of this. And actually, the one that I'm going to bring to the table here first um, just comes because I happened to see it as I was looking through old journal entries uh, about 
10 years ago to the day, um, I wrote something on Exodus 34, 23 to 24 in my journal. And it ties in almost exactly with what I'm talking about here. And this need that we have to put Jesus before anything else because that's how life is going to work. That's how our hearts are going to approach things with peace and, and, and we'll succeed. So let me read to you that text there in Exodus and then I'm just going to read to you uh, what I had written in my journal at that point. This is Exodus 34, 23 and 24. God's talking uh, to Israel about what life is going to be like in the promised land when he brings them, as he's bringing them kind of from Egypt to Canaan, saying, this is what I'm going to need from you when we get there, okay? And here's what he says. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Now you look at that and you go, I have no idea how this is going to connect. Or maybe you do. But let me read to you why it stood out so much to me at the time and still today. It is here such an amazing testament to the sovereignty of God. For three times a year, namely the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, the Jewish men were all to appear before God in Jerusalem, where the temple would be as later determined. This would leave all of the Israelites, and here it is, this would leave all of the Israelites' land, uh, the land of Canaan given to them by God, vulnerable to attack from any enemy. With only women and children left behind, anyone could come and conquer as they like. These are perilous times. You don't just leave your land with your women and children in these times. But God, with sovereign control, even over the minds and affections of men, promises that no one shall covet your land when you are gone. No one will come, though they would undoubtedly conquer if they did. What amazing sovereignty we can rest in. Be obedient to God. Give Him all of yourself, even if natural wisdom would say you are being foolish and leaving yourself vulnerable to terrible possibilities. The Lord is a warrior. He will keep us safe. He will help students during finals week. I was a college pastor at the time. <laughs> he will help students during finals week. So don't neglect appearing before Him to do your studying. He will help the poor put food in their pantry. So don't neglect appearing before him to work. He will help me with my preaching. So don't neglect appearing before him to prepare. Natural wisdom may say, if I do not do such things, I will in no ways ace my test, feed my children, be ready to preach a sermon on Friday night or whatever. But it is quite like the Israelites in this situation. For while they may be tempted to say, if we do not stay here and protect, we will lose everything. God promises clearly, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. He controls the hearts of men. He controls the happenings of earth. Or how much higher then is the priority to appear before him than to do anything else? 
I love that text. I love the fact that you can draw so much for your own life from these obscure, at first, different laws from the Old Testament. God just says, I got your land, I got your ladies, I got your family. I got it. Don't neglect coming to me. That is the one necessary thing. Now, what happens when they neglect the one necessary thing, right? Well, they lose the land and they lose everything. Thinking they were saving it. That's how we lose it, brothers and sisters. Isn't that the crazy reality? It's in the midst of our trying to accomplish and succeed that we actually lose everything. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But with regard to this text back in Exodus, there's one more thing I wanted to bring out. Because um, I don't think it's a coincidence that this instruction concerning three times in the year, this sort of kind of come and spend before God, it actually comes within the broader context of instructions concerning the Sabbath. In other words, not just three times a year we're trying to do this sort of thing, but actually we're, we're embedding this, we're ingraining this into our day-to-day life. Once a week I'm wanting you to say, listen, we're done with work, we're just going to rest before our God. We're going to enter into his rest. Know that it's going to be all right. But here's what he says in verse 21, right before the verses I just read. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. But he's not done. Here's what he says. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. And I love that. I love his qualifications there. In plowing time, in harvest time, you shall rest. Why does he do that? Why not just say, six days work, seventh day rest. Why does he add plowing time, harvest time? Well, I'm thinking because if I'm Israel in that day, those are the two periods in the year when when I'm thinking maybe God makes an exception to this whole Sabbath thing. Because there is a shelf life. There is a significant deadline. If we don't get the the seed in the ground when it's time to sow, well, then things go, you know, they don't mature properly and then they don't come to fruit when it comes time to harvest. We have a limited time to get all our stuff in order during the plowing season. Same thing when it comes to harvest. Well, gosh, if we don't go out there and get everything that we can, as many days as it takes, things are going to die on the tree or the vine or in the fields. They're going to rot out there and it's going to go away. Surely God doesn't want us to waste. We've got to go. We've got to get it. We've got to fill our barns up. But he says, no. He specifically highlights those two seasons in their life and would say, even then, Put me above it. Promise it's going to be okay. It's the same idea with the manna principle, right? Do you remember that? Go out and get enough manna for the day. And listen, when it comes time on Friday for you to gather, and I want you to rest on Saturday, on the Sabbath, you'll find you have enough. You can be all right. I'll multiply it. I'll double it. Whatever. I'll keep it. But if you try to gather more for yourself without resting, what happens? rots. It's the opposite. Always what we think. We're going to store more. We find out our, our, our barns may be full, but our hearts are empty. 
We think that if we were to stop, everything would fall apart. If we don't get, here's my, if I don't get back to the emails, if I don't get this or that by the deadline I said, if I don't, then it's going to fall apart. We, that's how we think. If we don't, you know, keep going, then it's going to fall. But Jesus is telling us, no, it's, it's, you have it all backwards. If you don't stop, if you don't come and engage in this one necessary thing with me, it's going to fall apart. Because all that is mine. So here's where we move then to the second and, if you're worried, shorter part of the sermon. The neglect of it. What happens... What happens when we neglect this sort of relationship with Jesus Christ? I think that's exactly what we see happen with Martha. We watch this kind of play out in her life. We're not told why she's been neglecting. Maybe it's because of some breakdown in the things we've just been discussing. Maybe she feels like she doesn't have time to kind of sit there with Jesus because that's actually what like a subpar disciple does. That she's trying to build her own righteousness. She's trying to serve. She wants to look good. She's trying to, to, to develop her resume before God. Maybe that's why she doesn't have time. Some of us get stuck in that legalistic thing. I mean, we take some of the gospel for granted here, I think. But back in Luther's day, this idea would have been amazing. Back in the days of the Reformation, when they're just ritual after ritual, stuff after stuff, get my righteousness right to have this break on their soul, which would be incredible. Wow. It's first your work. It's finished. And then we can move on from there. So maybe she's in that place, trying to develop righteousness, her own, before God. Or maybe there's a breakdown in what we just talked with regard to this idea of success. Maybe she doesn't care all that much about how she's being perceived by God and being saved or something like that. Maybe instead she just wants to throw a cool party. (laughs) Maybe she just had this idea of what the party would be. What the meal would look like, what the table settings would, you know, how all this would go down and the timeline and and how she would wow the crowd because Jesus is there with his disciples and she's heard about these guys and she wants to make a good impression, wants to throw a good party and it's not lining up, it's not going the way that she wants. There's not surrender here to the heart and will of God, perhaps, Perhaps it's, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy pushing and pulling. I don't know what God has planned for me, but I know what I have planned for me, and i got to get it done, Jesus. Don't interrupt me. In fact, get married to help me. Right? Maybe there's a breakdown in these sorts of things, but one thing we see, Martha herself is starting to break down because of it. She's starting to fall, falter. Things are starting to fray and unravel because of this. Neglect. I wonder if you noticed that things really start to unravel in every direction for her. Breakdown in her own heart. There's a breakdown in her relationship with her sister. And there's even a breakdown in her relationship with Jesus, with God. Let me just show you this quickly, and then I'll draw things to a close. With regard to her own heart, 
This one we've made note of plenty, I think, enough by now. But you see it there, verse 40, distracted, we're told. She's distracted with much serving. And then again, verse 41, she's anxious and she's troubled. So stuff is heavy in her. And that's what you realize. If, say, she's trying to build her own righteousness, it is an exhausting affair. It's an exhausting affair. Something slips out your mouth that you shouldn't have, you know, thought shouldn't be there. You still falter in sin here or there and you're rushing to clean it up or trying to justify it away so that you still can feel like it's exhausting. Or if you do have ideas of how your life is supposed to go, right? We, we kind of think that, that, that getting that will give us rest, but instead we just find we're more anxious. That's kind of what I've been mentioning. There's this text in Haggai that just touches on us so profoundly. Let me read it to you. The, the interesting thing about this text is, co- the context here is, all the Israelites are building. The temple kind of been destroyed. They've bought back into the land. They're going to build the house again for God, the temple. But instead, they're all just building their own houses. In other words, taking care of their stuff, getting success on their own terms, neglecting the one necessary thing. And here's what life is like when you live that way. Haggai 1.6 You have sown much and harvested little. Like, where did all the fruit go? We did a lot of work, put a lot of seed in the ground. Where's the harvest? You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, this was the image that's so powerful to me. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Just what a profound, ah, this is the greed and I'm getting what I want, baby, and I got it. Here we go. I'm dropping it in and it's gone. Where'd it go? So we maybe are checking things off of our list. Like, okay, I got that job. I got that house. I got that girl. I got that boy. I got everything working out. I'm on that vacation. I've been planning. And yet something here is just, I thought there would be more to this. I thought there'd be peace, there'd be rest. Instead, actually, my goodness, I feel even more anxious, more troubled. So things go wrong within our own hearts because of our our breakdown at this point, our neglect at this point. But then we also see that things start to go wrong in our relationships as well. And you watch this with Martha there in verse 40. Sibling rivalry has been around for a long time, and it shows up in our text, uh, not just in my house, I guess. Uh, verse 40, my sister, she says, has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. In other words, you can kind of hear the bitterness rising as she's rushing around in the kitchen, as she's doing her thing to bring the food and try to serve these people. What is Mary doing sitting there? She needs to get on board or get out of here. Right? When Jesus isn't the satisfaction of our hearts, when we're not surrendered to him, we become critical and and antagonistic with others. So if there's breakdown in this idea of trying to develop her own righteousness, well then, what you have when it comes to other people is you, you actually need other people kind of as foils so that you can critique 
You can put down so you start feeling better about yourself. That's just what the Pharisees were experts at. I need to look down on others because I'm trying to develop my righteousness over here. Or if in Martha's heart there's this idea of I just want to throw a good party. It's my agenda, my success, my plan that I'm after. But what you find when that starts to take priority rather than Jesus is that people in your life just kind of become these objects to manipulate. They're either going to get on board with your agenda or they need to get out. So get Mary in here and get her to do what I need her to do. People no longer become, uh, or, or no longer are people that we can serve and love. Instead, we start seeing them as objects and things and slaves that should serve us. So there's breakdown in our relationships with other people. But then perhaps the most startling thing here is what this sort of neglect does to our relationship with God. You notice her accusation of Jesus here again there in verse 40. Look at this. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. In other words, this is happening to me because you're failing to act. The tragic irony is that even in the midst of her serving him, because her heart has wandered from him in one way or another, she ends up turning on him in the end. It's your fault. I expected more from you. Now, I don't know. Maybe you feel this way. Maybe it's even kind of... uh, Frightening how much these things relate to your own life and even the breakdown and the unraveling that you watch with Martha. Maybe you're seeing that right now. I just want you to see Jesus' response. We've read this text probably four times now. I'm going to bring out one last thing. I want you to hear how Jesus responds to Martha. I want you to hear how he would respond to you. This is verses 41 and 42 again. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Many commentators say we should read tenderness into that kind of double use of the name. And that's where I want to camp out. Martha, Martha. They say, listen, we should read into that concern and care, not scolding or condemnation. And here's one of the reasons why you might be inclined to read it in the way the commentators are saying. Do you remember how Jesus handled Peter in Luke 22:31? Here they are, they're around the table, they're talking about Jesus, he's going to die, he's talking about what's going to go down in Peter's heart, right? There's this Pride, kind of swelling up. I've got this. I'm going to be all right. These guys might fall away, not me. That's the sort of thing that's under here. And then Jesus looks at Peter, and what does he say? Simon, Simon. Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times, man. Perhaps worse than any of these brothers. 
But I'm praying for you. I will restore you. I have you. Stop looking to your own strength, Simon. Your own, your own abilities. And come back to me. You're in my hands. Isn't that the same exact sort of thing that's going on with Martha? Martha, Martha. Gosh, I love you. But you're making so much of lesser things. Come back. I have you. I'm with you. Stop relying on your own abilities, your own plans, your own righteousness, your own strength. And just sit and rest a while. We'll take care of the work stuff later. I think that's what he'd say to Martha. I think that's what he'd say to us. If I could, I'd say all of you by your name twice. But I won't. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you pursue us even in the midst of our wandering from you. I pray that even as we sing and relate to you here and now, God, that there would be meaningful connection, deep relationships sitting at your feet taking place in this, in this room. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. We just want to sit and rest. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.